0: Yeah. Hello,
1: everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you this evening?
0: David, I'm really well. I've been playing some music with some really, really good people. Uh, I had a fantastic day of of teaching. Uh, it, It was sort of one of those breakthrough moments where you think, well, even if I'm not being paid the money, as in like, 10% 10% on what I really should be paid, uh, something important is, is really happening. And I, I feel really good about that. And I think that the uh, the thing that excites me the most is I've gotten some tremendous feedback from our last episode of Lava Lamp Creativity. And I'm really grateful for that. I think that we're saying something that, that is meaningful to people about the nature of education, wherever they fall in that frame. They don't need you know, they may not have kids in the system, but they understand the importance of education in a larger social system framework. And I, I had an idea, because uh, we were talking about the the notion of reading How do you encourage young people to read? I mean, this is the real core problem. You've either got literacy or numeracy as the core problem of education. Everything else spills out from there. And I was thinking that I don't actually remember learning how to read. I remember very painfully learning how to handwrite. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... For me, when it happened and the direction, I think the vector, the motivation, you know, we like to talk in terms of actors. The motivation for me to be able to read myself was independence. I didn't have to depend on my sister or my grandmother. Mm -hmm. And that made me think of the other core independent vehicle of my childhood, which was a bike, a bicycle four motorcycles, you know, just an ordinary three-speed Schwinn bike. If I had been able to be riding a bike when I was nine, I wouldn't have been raped. That's a fact in my life. And that was a key motivation. I got a job after school vacuuming and cleaning toilets at an industrial dry cleaner age nine i'm a real hardcore early work person i hope gus gets out doing anything paper route anything anything that is independence driven and a little bit you know the monetary side is obviously secondary but getting that bike was like reading. It opened up doors of independence. And I wonder if the problem that you and I talked about in the last episode is about independence. Maybe young people today don't want independence. They don't want privacy. They don't want the special hermetic connection of privacy then move to the social thing of you know, who, you, you talked about your friends were reading certain things and mine were, too. So the privacy element wasn't totally isolated and sealed off. It mm-hmm. was secret sort of sharing. But it was about that ability to get out and be independent. And for urban people who aren't, you know, in a situation where bikes are the thing, I would say that managing your public transport network as a young person is important. But I wonder if the the reading problem today has something to do with just not wanting to be independent, mm-hmm. wanting to stay home, wanting to be conformist, you know? Let's just stay on our cell phones and be connected with everyone and not be independent. I mean, when I got, I had a green Schwinn three-speed bike that I paid for myself when I was 10, cleaning toilets and vacuuming this industrial dry cleaners after school. Of course, it was a safe place for me to be because my attacker was still out on the, he hadn't yet strangled two other boys and shot himself in the head in Incline Village, Nevada. He was still alive and stalking me. So it was a place for me to be. But when I got that bike and I paid for it myself, it was like being able to read the Hardy Boys. It was like being able to read my first exposure to Dylan Thomas at that age. You know, seriously, I actually tried some of that. I felt like I could do it myself. And I think this is the whole problem with modern living is that we want to be able to do it ourselves. And so little of life is possible. There's so many barriers now. Get the app. You know, you need training. You need, you know, expert support. You need all this help. And you can never just fucking do anything yourself. You can't even fuck, I mean, how many, there's no carburetors in cars anymore, you know?
1: I um, ordered books for AWP. I ordered a stock of books. They were due to arrive on Friday. And I got an email from UPS saying that they had been delivered at 3 p.m. I was home. I looked outside my door and there was nothing there. I went to the office, the apartment complex office, and they said, oh no, we don't handle any packages here. Why don't you call the apartment complex across the street? So I called them and they said, oh, we haven't seen anything like that. And there was no image for where it was dropped off. There was no um, no indication of where my package was going to be, essentially. And so what I did to your point, about sort of just going out there and doing it is I started knocking on doors and I knocked on doors for a few hours and I found my package and I have my books now. They sent it to, I, I live in 414. They, for whatever reason, sent it to 1426. Who knows? But I had to go find it. And I think to your point, I think a lot of people these days would have just been like, well, I guess it's gone forever. And of course the person who got my package, how would they know how to get it back to me? The lobby is not going to, they're they're not going to tell them where I live, you know? Um, But it's that you got to go knock on doors. You got to be a little bit of a private detective. Go find your shit.
0: You know, and, and the wonderful Bosch TV series that we mentioned, that I've rediscovered, which is based on the Michael Connelly novels uh there's often a sign in the back of of these you know cubicles that the detectives are in get off your ass and knock on doors you know just get out in the world it yeah there are some deep mysteries really gigantic mysteries like where did the universe begin did it begin When did humanity begin? How does language structured? There's a lot of things that we're never going to know, but there are a lot of things that we can know. Just get up off your butt and knock on the door. Be curious. This is the one thing that is non-negotiable in terms of being an intellectual, artistic, creative person is curiosity. Mm -hmm. got to be curious, you know, Mm -hmm. if you don't care. Well, I don't know what you're gonna create because it's not gonna be very interesting. You know?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Gotta knock on some doors, gotta go reach out and look around at things. And a lot of, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about our listenership in the sense that we know them, and certainly in the sense of the feedback that I've gotten from this, you know, the last episode. Uh I do know those people. And I think that one thing that really is, I just totally celebrate is their great curiosity. Not necessarily privileged into, you know, elite people with great Ivy League education opportunities. No, no, not at all. But (laughs) curious, really, really curious people.
1: That's cool. That's cool. All right. Do you have a band and an aphorism for us today?
0: I didn't know that you were feeling under the weather, but I'm grateful now that that I think this will cheer you up. If this isn't like a major shot of vitamin C and, and B vitamin, like, you know, really, I don't know what will the band is called the house of tentacles and they are a performance group. They built on this earlier thing of going, yeah, we actually need to have some artistic commentary on culture. We can't just be thumping out the music or we can't just be performing in lingerie like Taylor Swift. You know, we got to actually deliver something. Mm-hmm. Their first album is called severed children. Hmm. On the surface, they are a neo-Alice Cooper-Ozzy Osbourne band. Except they're really a meta-concept act. They're a theater troupe pretending to be a shock rock band of old. Composed, and this is the lovely part, of registered sex offenders. Their album is based on the model of a creepy haunted house attraction they construct for kids. What could go wrong? Who could (laughs) object? So every song is another room in this haunted house for children that these registered sex offenders have created. Of course, the real people behind the band are not at all registered sex offenders, but they have a good sense of humor where all of our liberal friends have completely abandoned humor and irony. And I don't know if our, I don't think we have any right-wing friends. So there you go. A cultural commentary about The nature of fun in an ironic, analytical way. The House of Tentacles and their debut album, Severed Children.
1: Do you think you can help what you think is funny? No. You know what I mean? I don't think you can either. No. That's that's been something to me. For example, I love a good uh, cultural or racial joke, as long as it's not ugly. If it's, if it's in good fun, I think those are really funny. And I can't, that's just, I just think those are funny. And it says not, nothing else about who I am as a person. And I, I just feel like a lot of these people are not being honest with what they really, like do you, some of the goofy shit that I see posted on Facebook, I wonder to myself, do you really think that's funny? Or is that the neutered performative humor that,
0: Those are both key key words, David. Neutered and performative. And I think that's a tribute to your intellect that you zero in on that. No, those are just absolute. And I I would then also add completely uh, false and insincere. And I think those people know what they're doing is insincere. It is purely performative. And I'm sorry they're neutered, Mm -hmm. you know, But I think they let themselves become neutered. You know, it's kind of
1: sad. I just I don't understand when we made this connection between uh, the visceral reaction of thinking that something is funny with your morality
0: at all. Well, it's like, you know, someone trying to tell you, well, you should look at this, you know, before Sports Illustrated got canceled. And is now up for uh, hopefully it'll be found and and bought by someone. But one of the great magazines, mainstream magazines of my time, folded. You know, and no one went, "Whoa, shit!" I mean, the Sports Illustrated headline feature was huge, and this, and certainly the swimsuit. Pitchfork folded too recently. Uh, well, I mean. You know, really, I mean, God damn, you know, how can we lose that? But it's so weird to think that someone could impose upon us the idea that, well, you should get really hot and horny looking at this woman, not this woman. Or this male you know whatever whatever you're but it's the same idea so we we get these you know a suddenly not a plus-sized woman i think someone kind of grotesque
1: yeah yeah
0: I it makes it makes no
1: sense I,
0: but the thing i care about is that someone says to me well this is what should turn you on no no, that is an authoritarian, totalitarian strangeness of our time that is injected into my privacy that I won't tolerate. No, I don't find that woman attractive. Full stop. No apology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to criticize her. I'm not going to bury her. I'm not going to like attack her on social media. But I just don't think that anyone should go, well, this is what should turn you on. No, I've
1: also I've listened to comedians before who in my opinion cross a line and for me the line is always whether or not you're being funny or just ugly. And I've <laughs> seen a few who've crossed over into ugly. So I do have lines, but do you know what I do? Tell me. I, I turn it off and I go find something else.
0: Well, there is that. There is that, you know? There is that, you know? We kind of forget that we have that ability, you know? I
1: always thought that Howard Stern was really distasteful. I never liked his Me too. show.
0: Me too. I have no sympathy. For- I-, I I never go. Well, see, I was overseas when he was, you know, big, and he didn't penetrate across national boundaries, as far as I know. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose he would technologically, but I never really crossed. But I don't like anything about him. I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the shock jock idea. I don't. Or
1: the he turned into the biggest COVID guy of all time and was yeah. suddenly lecturing everybody on how to be when he there's something about celebrity figures who rise to prominence doing things like having women ride Sibian machines live on the air who then morally lecture people that doesn't sit right with me. It's like, oh no, dude. Yeah, <laughs> do, funny that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but and- what is your aphorism for today?
0: I'm going to have to refer to my notebook. All right. One of five notebooks in progress.
1: I like that you have a spiral bound notebook as well. I I have one myself who needs the fancy Loic terms and moleskins, even though I do love those just a good old fashioned 90 cent notebook from Walmart.
0: Exactly. Well, I, I'm going to go with a question this time, because, you know, I think the problem was. Um, and I think this is really an important thing for people to remember. Uh, questions are valid aphorisms. You don't need to have an assertive statement. I think A lot of my uh, students feel um, a little bit overshadowed by the notion of. Uh, some sort of direct statement. They feel it's more of an imperative uh, than it it should be. So I want to ask a question, just a simple one. Ah. Well, is anything simple? That's not all so intricate. That's part of my aphorism. But which is harder, to watch a kettle boil or a toaster pop? What's really going on with those those experiences? I mean, I, I think that's really worth digging into. I like the idea of aphorisms being something artifactual and, and kind of ceramic, you know, unto mm-hmm. themselves. I like that idea. But I also like something a little bit more dynamic that we can take apart and think, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I've ever... You know, someone says, well, you, you know, a watched pot never boils. Well, that's bullshit. Of course they do. If you've got heat under a pot and there's water in it, it will boil. Mm-hmm. You know, it may not boil in the time that you feel, you know, we know what that really means. But it's a metaphorical statement. Well, it's yeah. not boiling as fast as I want it to. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to I'm, I have to be patient. And I love all language forms that challenge us to look more physically and look into the physical sciences. Because if we can bring ourselves to to a more physical and organic chemistry point of view, we're going to be stronger as humanity's social, artistic based people. You know, that's awesome. I like that. Got to be on top of that.
1: I like that a lot. What is my imaginative challenge for today?
0: All right, all right, all right. Well, I like this one a lot. We had some fun sending you to Saskatchewan. And we're going to send you to Manitoba. Provincial Canada. This is going to be a fulfillment of a lost novel idea of mine. One of my great uh, creative writing mentors was Sidney Lee, who -hmm. was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in poetry. He was a, a hockey champion at the University of Pennsylvania. And in his youth, he was recruited to go north to Canada During this summer, you would think that Canadians would enjoy some summer free of hockey. (laughs) No, no, no. You know nothing about Canadians if you think that. Canadians want hockey all year long. Mm -hmm. And a small town in Manitoba managed to tax fund Mm. a fantastic hockey arena out in the middle of the plains. And they would recruit young Americans, 14 years old, 15 years old, other Canadians, to come play in round-robin tournaments all summer long. Mm -hmm. So my mentor, teacher, poet, guardian friend went off to this world. And what did he find? he found that the round-robin tournaments were actually the source of tremendous gambling betting Mm -hmm. by the locals Mm -hmm. and that everything was rigged and that people got desperately in debt worse than Las Vegas and that we got... a Central Canadian patent place based on hockey and that you as a hockey star could be bought out and sold to support or deal with all of these background debts. Or you could just be maybe the victim of an accident because you're a great goal scorer. Mm-hmm. So you have a chance here to create a Central Canadian soap opera extravaganza based around summer, summer hockey out in the plains wheat fields. And you did such a good job with this, you know, the Saskatchewan uh crossbearer. I mm-hmm. think it's a great chance to do a soap opera thing. And I think that We want to hear your soap opera skills because you're a great character developer and you're Mm -hmm. a manager of parallel stories. But the idea is that, yeah, 20 to 40 young men under the age of 18 get brought into this little town in the middle of nowhere with a gorgeous hockey rink and all of the support they need. They play different teams. They move around. It's round robin. I hope people understand that concept. But the idea is, behind the scenes, the townspeople are deeply engaged in gambling on the results. And this has an enormous amount to do with the economy, the sex relations of the town. This is a soap opera premise.
1: Oh, I like it. Okay. Okay. Let me make one note
0: really quickly here. Soap operas are, you know, aren't they Greek mythology, Roman mythology? I know it's everything, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. All right. Cool. Let's see here. Here's a note that Chris sent me. Relaxed, deep sleep is perhaps the single best natural healing agent there is. If we wake slowly, there's still a profound vibration of nurture, if not immediate refreshment. But pattern is the key. The reliability of satisfying sleep is elemental to its satisfaction. Consider this then. We live in a time increasingly characterized by sleep problems. Go to the appropriate aisle in any pharmacy a Big aisle. The problem is an epidemic, but not a pandemic yet. But are sleeping problems seeping and sweeping around the globe? With a focus on insomnia, but not excluding other sleep disorders such as apnea, restless leg syndrome, nightmares, etc., what if we asked this question? Is it possible that the simplest and yet most coherent and embracing explanation of modernity is trouble sleeping? Is this an oversimplification? Or Is it a sigilization? By the way, isn't sigilization an interesting counter to civilization? I do like that. I do like that. And I would 100% agree. I think that this is there's a guy called Dr. Huberman, Andrew Huberman. He talks about sleep all the time on his podcast. He's got a big show. He works out at the Stanford lab. He has a lab out, out at Stanford, and I want to say his major focus is on sleep. He's a, and the brain, right? So he's a neuroscientist, whatever. And people are beginning to find out that, yeah, it turns out you really need sleeping. Now, when it's put in scientific terms, uh, it has to do with circadian rhythms and um, regeneration, charging the batteries, and all that's true. Not saying that it's not, but we know how much we value dreams here. And we know that there's something about spending time in the dream world that is important too. Um, Just the same way as being around people is important. So I really liked this note about sleep.
0: I think it's so important. You know, just before the show, I was looking at, A survey of the best pillows, individual pillows, okay, not four or two, you know, but if say you're a couple, you're 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 not gonna have just one, right? Mm -hmm. And the recommended pillow that I came up with costs eighty-nine dollars. Now, that seems to me a lot for a pillow, I, I, but I grant the importance of pillows. My bed, I'm really pleased with, but it's, you know, I mean, it, you could go 10 times that. I'm sure someone like Matt Damon, you know, or whoever has a bed that costs 10 times more, but mine is still pretty expensive. And, you know, you look back, only a little while ago at what people were sleeping on and with, you know? And somehow they made do. And maybe they made better do than what we're doing now. One of my key concerns of light is I think that we really are out of touch with the dream lives of the people of the past. Mm-hmm. Because we certainly substitute well, well, we not. We've unconditionally introduced a level of artificial world of entertainment and news media and constant exposure to a kind of strange other dream life that people obviously, you know, 100 years ago did not have. But I I think that people sleeping is one of the great problems of our time. I think if people slept better, I think if people had better sex, and I think if people did not you know, consume so much noxious fast food, we would have a much more reasonable and imaginative community to live in. I think those three factors are non-negotiably important. But sleep is is really be- the beginning point. I mean, think of the you know the first thing of New York, which is mm-hmm. for a lot of us Americans and also people around the world, you know, a, a magnet point, the city that never sleeps. Mm-hmm. Really, mm-hmm. the city that never so the city that is inherently psychotic. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to go to the, the hub of psychosis. I, I'm going to get on that plane. I, I'm look. I'm going to be on Fifth Avenue mm-hmm. or Times Square. I want to be in the heart of the psychosis.
1: Really, in my, what's what's funny about New York? Also, when I was house sitting for Scott Adlerberg there six or seven years ago, it is absolutely a city that sleeps. Yeah, They're shut down there. <laughs>
0: so does Vegas. Yeah, you know? I yeah. mean, and I tell you what. Dog. Bodegas
1: close at 10 p.m.
0: You know, a lot. I mean, the bodegas, you know, that they, they're not open all night. Come on. Mm-hmm. What what is this? You know, why did we even, you know, it that was being promoted before the 24/7 news cycle of TV media and cape, you know, the whole cable thing. Why did we ever want to? What's wrong with going to sleep?
1: You mm-hmm. know,
0: mm-hmm. the diners closed. Come back tomorrow at 6 a.m., you know? Mm-hmm. For God's sake, nothing has yeah. to be open all the time. And why are you at? you know? It used to be like, you know, the cop thing was, if you were out after 2 a.m., well, you're a likely suspect to be pulled over just for being out then, you know? Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of truth in that.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's nothing good for me has ever happened at 3 a.m. 4 a.m., yes. If that's a wake-up time, that's fine. But I don't think anybody's waking up at 3. If you're awake at 3, it means you stayed up that late. I used to work as a concierge in Fountain Plaza in Portland, Oregon, and I did the overnight shift from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., and that was a bizarre job. Nothing really happened. I occasionally heard the animalistic screams of the homeless wandering by, um, opened a few doors for people who'd been out drinking, but otherwise I sat behind the desk and watched the cameras and read books. So, um, But it puts you in a very weird space because you don't sleep the way you're supposed to. You would think that you could just get on a different schedule, and some people do, but I don't. I think you're supposed to sleep when it's nighttime, which sounds like a no-brainer, but a lot of people don't seem to get behind that idea. My students, by the way, I'll ask them and they'll be straight up with me. They'll say, well, I, I stayed up last night until 2. And I'll say, it's 7.30 in the morning. You didn't sleep. And they say, yeah. And then they try to sleep in my class and I say, absolutely not. You need to sleep at home.
0: Well, you know, think about what people were sleeping on Yeah, not that long ago. Grass and And, rocks. You know, I mean, really, I I, I just I think it's absolutely psychotic that we accept these sleep disorders when like the people we're talking about in that category are not crossing the river. They're mm-hmm. not being shot at. They're not camping out in the wild. And we're not really that concerned about people on the streets of L.A. and Portland and San Francisco, you know, camping on the pavement. We're not talking mm-hmm. about these people. We're mm-hmm. talking about people who actually have some place in the world, some jobs, some, ec- you know, really economic capability. And they are having trouble sleeping. And you think, well, What? you've got a a fifteen hundred to three thousand dollar mattress you've got financial security you've got some health insurance and you're having trouble sleeping i mean Mm -hmm. how how do you even think about people in the past in chaucer's era you know i mean those people had bed you know they had some sort of mattress sort of thing but you look at it you think Wait a minute. Whoa, look at what look at the mattress that George Washington, our first president, slept on. Really, I would have some problems sleeping on that. I'd rather be on a greyhound bench in you know, really Albuquerque, New Mexico. You know, Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm.
0: so there's something fundamentally wrong, but when we get our sleeping, which is our physical aspect. Of nurture and support. We also get our dreaming wrong. And I think that is a really I, I know it it seems like a simplistic overview rubric umbrella for what the modern modern age has become. But I think it's really true. I think that it, it it's something that is absolutely needs to be looked at. I mean how anyone could not have a good night's sleep in my bed in in the whole history of humanity is a problem, and mm-hmm. yet I I you know I put up my hand last night was you know I I woke up a few times mm-hmm. you know and. There. this is something that we all need to work on. I mean, I think, I really think if we just looked after each other in terms of wanting, for all of us, a good night's rest, some affirmation physically of, if not outright sex, just some nurture, skin, mm-hmm. health, a little bit mm-hmm. of help, just I don't know, rub my shoulders, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) A little touching. My first girlfriend, you know, she she cut hair for older people and Skid Row guys in Salinas. And she was so gentle, you know, and just kind. And she said, there's nothing, you know, off about it. It's just being human. And then a little bit of care about the food we eat. I don't think that those aren't intellectual ideas; those are just really basic human ideas. But we do need to get on top of that because we are—we have completely lost touch with where what we're doing now sits with not that long ago, not that long ago, um, yeah, even fifty years ago, you know we we're, we're, we're really getting out of of gear with things and good sleep i mean look at, has anyone thought about this relative to animals mm-hmm. I, do the mexican collared lizards and i i see them all the time behind my house and i i, I think i've confessed I've taken out a few with my blowgun darts and I've cooked them and they make good eating. I'm sorry. I I just, I'm not going to apologize. I love them as I know. And I prayed and, 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 and tried to sort of say thank you. Uh, But I, I did feel the need to experience them on their own terms. And I thought it was fair to, you know, they're much more, they're much faster than I am. So I thought if I could take one out with a dart, I think, well, good for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the animals are sleeping okay. Or maybe not, but I think they are. And I think that what we need to do is to get to a place where we recognize the grace of sleep and rest and re-nourishment And sleep, dreams, sex, and good food is what we all need.
1: Absolutely. I think that Doug Rushkoff said something recently about how people are mycelial, that our nervous systems reach out to each other like the mycelium on mushrooms, and how we live at a time now where everybody communicates in binary code as though through a computer. And those are two very different forms of communication. The binary communication of a computer feels like person to person, but it's fundamentally not, because there, are no two nervous systems are interacting with each other. This is why if you put a person in isolation for too long, they'll die, because you as a human being have to something woo woo and mystical and very lost explorers ish happens when you are close to a person. You know, I've talked about the the joys of spooning in the past it's necessary you have to you also do have to have sex uh spooning is great too but people need to get out there and start humping because it shows it shows how little they do that
0: well you know what do you think about this this idea of mine that that i'm i'm inferring you know walking across this giant university campus i'm but I, I've got my parabolic ear, you know, my big giant, you know, I, I, I'm i carrying around a lot of equipment, listening mm-hmm. to people, and I just don't feel there is the humping and bumping, that there should be <laughs> these young people who have, I mean, they've got great bodies, a lot of, you know, this is the time to be doing it. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is a fertility cycle sort of issue here. Uh, I don't think that the expectations for someone my age are the same. But, you know, I'm not in that game. I'm not giving up that game. So I don't see where this, I don't know. I, I was trying to think about it today. Is it a kind of neutrality? Is it just an overvaluance of, well, this is what we're, we're here to get degrees in things. No, I don't think so. I just don't know what it is. But I don't think it's the humping and bumping that you're talking about. I yeah. just don't feel that. I don't feel that energy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Here's something new from your note. The age of trolls, the age of apps, throngs of dolls, structures collapse. I'm afraid of the death of mythos, the overgrown, abandoned labyrinth. In Israel, they used to show porn films at drive-in movie theaters, big screen. It's a little known fact. I'm afraid of a descent into nightmare without magic, ceremonies degenerating into spectacle, incoherent rituals of violence. Not a visionary brutalism full of geometry and high ideals, not a bestial sensual hedonism of misguided innocence and cliched desires. No, a kind of barbed wire methamphetamine mutant amnesia. <clears throat> See, to me, this is, we are further and further uh, sculpting this idea that we're talking about, this this difference between these two things. There's something different about, and I like the word methamphetamine because there is that synthetic cold facsimile feeling to everything that you do when you're high on speed. Everything is is great. I'm using air quotes with that, but it's not really because it lacks any of the biological organic squishiness of humanity that's necessary to really have that time.
0: I love squishiness and I think that's a really beautiful word that crosses between our two fundamental binaries, which no one wants to talk about. And I'm talking about male and female. If it's not squishiness, ain't nothing happening. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how everybody, that's how we all came to be squishiness. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think the methamphetamine, I'm glad that you seize on the cold. Because I think of it as a kind of a cold morning wake up in a place that you sort of remember falling asleep in, but you didn't really fall asleep in. And you're looking around going, I wonder who these people are, this woman, or is anyone here? You know, it's Mm -hmm. one of those mistakes that you made, the mistakes you made, the mistakes you made, you know that maybe you can get free of, you know?
1: hmm My big concern with education and all that it represents in terms of class mobility is the collapse of standards in the name of diversity and inclusion. The radical left claims this is a misnomer, despite a mountains of e- mountain of evidence to the contrary. Many go much further, believing the degradation of performance assessment is not only very real, uh, And not merely collateral damage, it's their explicit goal. Cancel the meritocracy, everyone's a winner, baby. So with that, I don't disagree with it. I do often wonder why, what the purpose of that is. Is it just middle management looking to save their own worthless skin? The idea that if things look okay on a piece of paper that you can show to your boss, then things are actually okay in the real squishy, dung-filled world that we actually live in? Is that the why? Or is it more sinister? And if it is more sinister, to to what end? To keep us stupid?
0: Oh, I think it's both. I think it's both. Mm. I think there is a group of people, uh, these new age educational administrators who exist at all levels. I was talking to Lisa tonight she sees it on her elementary school level. I see it at my university level. I think mm-hmm. you probably see it at your high school level. I absolutely. It's do. Everywhere. It's everywhere. And I uh-huh. think some of these people are well-intentioned. They they truly believe that if they lower the standards and just make everyone feel welcome, and everyone has a bowl of soup at yeah. the table. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. The problem is that they don't have any actual exposure to students who are highly competitive. I mean, I love my crazy nutcase students from around the world. And one thing I would say in Gom from the remote villages of northern China, third language people, to people from Central America, to black people crazy Vegas kids from the Clark County school district. They're competitive. Mm -hmm. They have some pride. Mm -hmm. They have, uh, my teaching is not about elite students who feel privileged in any way. They, they want to duke it out. They, they, they're, they're, they're in it. They're in it. Mm -hmm. And they have some real character if they don't have the greatest language skills yet, they have some real character and they don't wanna to be told, oh, we're gonna pass you. We're just gonna move you on and make it okay because you're kind of not really right. They'd hate that. They'd hate that. So, right. this is the first problem the administration people who are in charge of this idea don't have any real experience with the people they're talking about. They don't have any yes. experience at all. The second real crucial problem is that there is no escape from competition. None of the administrative people, none of this progressive framework of inclusion and equity can solve the problem finally of competition because you know this is the thing like if you say okay only black people can will get this job we don't mm-hmm. want really any white people you you know that mm-hmm. there's a resistance to saying that but often it's the truth mm-hmm. okay 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 let's just accept that. You still have a choice between two black people for the job. You've excluded all white people. You're just going to go on that really brutal, simple basis. Well, how do you choose then? And there's no answer to that from these administrative people. There's no answer from the diversity hire corporate, you know, HR people. What happens if, you know, I mean, really, this is what's going to happen very, very, it's already emerging, actually. There are a couple of really major lawsuits where someone goes, well, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. and suddenly there's no white people involved because no white people would even get through. Mm -hmm. But a black person goes, wait a minute, I'm as, I'm as qualified as that other black person. What Mm -hmm. happens? You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is the issue with most of this and we're seeing it now. It just takes time for it to, to happen. I mean, the, the, the chaos theory element Of the meritocracy, it was just a matter of time before that entropy set in, and we started to see the problems with it. uh, Because you can't set up systems like that. The only thing that really works is meritocracy. That's it. Who does better? Well, who scores scores more points? I
0: mean, it it really is. It served. I mean, it served everyone so well in terms of sports, entertainment, all Mm -hmm. of. The marginalized people who have broken through have broken through on a meritocracy basis, not on a social quota engineered short term program. But I think what you really just said is it takes time and everything does take time. Social change takes time. Getting a woman to orgasm takes time. Baking cupcakes takes time. We can't force everything into a framework of now. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: No justice, no peace, now. Really? Wait a minute. What do you, you know, what are your definitions of any of that? Oh no, they all vanish. Things do move forward. You and I both really ran a really, I think fine prosecution of the notion of progress across five major levels of civilization from the mythic to the scientific, to the social, etc. early in the piece. And I encourage people, listeners who are fans of ours, if they care enough to go back to that, because we did do a, an extended series and I think that Dave and I were really finding our, um, a real traction at that point. Progress, is a wonderful idea, but it's also a tremendous fantasy and it needs to be reinforced in reasonable ways. But the bottom line is that genuine progress happens in hardwired terms, like David's son Gus. You know, it's generational, it's physical, It's not legislated. It's not instantaneously programmed into people or shamed upon them by social media. It takes generational change. Gus is going to have some of David and Rios, their values. He's going to be in another world. And then when, hopefully, what his life will look like when David and Rios are, sort of old and wrinkled i know it's hard to imagine but david only has 36 more summers as we say uh delightfully we hope he has many more but generational change is real hardwired change is the essence of humanity i i've i you know I, I think we forget how much we matter to the idea of culture We've outsourced, David has often brought back the, the very simple term of outsourcing and he's reinvented it for me. I think it is too simple a term, but it's beautiful. We outsource everything. We we put onto some sort of database or AI or libraries, or, you know, we think, well, that's where the culture lives. And we forget that culture lives inside our heads and our hearts. That we are a memory system. We're a memory system as powerful as any database. And when we lose it, when we stop remembering, well, what do the databases matter? Hmm. You know, there is that.
1: Mm I like that. I like that. You ready to hear about my round robin hockey? I
0: am. I am. Let's take us to Canada. Hockey, soap opera, gambling, cheating. Tell us.
1: All right. Got a young kid whose dad was a hockey star. This kid's going out to this town to make his name and show his dad that he's worth something. So he's not going to want to participate in throwing the games, and he's going to have to learn the hard way. The villain is a Somalian immigrant who has taken over the gambling operations in the town, pissing off the whites and the natives of the area both. Speaking of the natives of the area, there is a character who sees his opponents and his fellow players as their spirit animals. This would be a big budget show. A bear and a beluga whale playing a crow and a hawk. (laughs) Another character is a 50-something waitress who fucks the 17-year-old hockey players. She is sicked on the young idealistic boy as a femme fatale to get him to give up on his dreams. I want this story to have metaphors for the struggle between good old-fashioned fun and the injection of corporate interests and rampant immigration. Why can't gambling just be fun? We'll also have that thrill of the gambler about to lose everything, parents not buying their kids new snow boots to bet on the games. Anyhow, the kid does not agree to throw the game, and the Somalian sends goons to cut his Achilles tendons. But he knows the drill now. He knows who's supposed to win. So how will he use this knowledge? This will be a Twin Peaks cast of characters. There will be a body under the ice, again, more than likely put there by the Somalian, and an extremely age-inappropriate romance between the young man and his much older femme fatale. That's the starting point
0: David, you know, all I want is a billion dollars to fund your, you know, wonderful takes on things and to get this sort of live shit happening in Hollywood. Because I mean, we got it going on, you know? I mean, and really this is the beginning of a whole new era because I've got some more shit coming your way that is just so exciting. And every time you respond, and I hope, you know, listeners, uh, I mean, I, I enjoyed that that story development idea just on its own but never forget everything is is story there is oh, yeah. no escape from story so mm-hmm. you've got to be good with story mm-hmm. story is a melody line in music terms story is the focal point of art mm-hmm. There is no escape from story. So just keep improvising and having fun. Set your, listen to, really listen to what we're doing in this podcast and what David is improvising in real time, because it's exciting to me. I have fun with it. Uh, Yeah, well, it shows. It shows that you have fun with it and have some fun with your thinking. You know, if you're happy in your own mind and your own imagination, then nothing can harm you now. You know, I feel like if you I feel feel like if you
1: want to call yourself a novelist, you should be able to do that. You should be able to come up with something in 30 minutes and flesh it out. You should be able to work up an outline in a couple hours, a serviceable outline, and leave the the hard work to the craft stuff you know to the word choice and the the business of writing but the story itself you should be training yourself to get that good um
0: and and people who don't even think of themselves as writers will get involved in that i mean lisa who is a friend of the show and certainly you know a, a very vibrant creative mind but in a different realm she did embrace this. Mm-hmm. Diane, you know, there are many of our friends and listeners who don't necessarily think of themselves as practicing novelists would nevertheless get involved in it because they like fun and competition and creativity and reaching forward to some new you know, perspective. So thank you, Dave, for always setting the bar high there. I think that's really really important and thank you
1: appreciate that do you have a tool and a tip for us today
0: well you know i'm going to hit you back with a major tool um all right because i think you do such a good job and i'm going to be very vulnerable and naked here i'm I'm going to lay out a big idea uh but here's my little preface isn't it interesting that something as important as will isn't metaphorically located or physically expressed in the body. Guts and nerve don't quite do it. Heart isn't quite right either. Same with mind. Personality and character have similar problems. Bodies are maps. This is one of our key ideas. This is why we call ourselves Lost Explorers. This is an accepted proposition in many quarters and on many levels. So why not focus on the crucial aspects of human being that are unmapped? What are the crucial aspects of your being? What's the harm in trying to make an inventory? So I want to share with you all... A very personal inventory that I've made up of things that I think are essential to my character, and I'm not always proud of them. You know, I think it's important. Some, I am. First, imagination. Proud of that. Also worried by it, scared by it often. Curiosity. Absolutely. I I am a dead set curious cat. Humor. I'd like to think I have a good sense of humor. Ritual. I have been a ritualistic magician from my earliest childhood, and some of that may not be entirely psychologically sound. I think there are some real elements of, of, of mental illness, if you like to think of it that way, uh, very early, but I think it supported me in, in, in many ways. Lust. I've had a lot of problems with my entire sexual orientation. I think that there have been some real periods of sex addiction, porn addiction, uh, confusion. Um, I can't get away from that. Paranoia. I mean that in both the old stoner fun way and also a disturbed way. Uh, I think it's a good word, you know. Paranoia means literally, in psychological terms, an overvaluance of self, and I think that probably does speak to something deep in me. Dreaminess. I've from a childhood, you know, I I, I just love just looking at the clouds, just thinking. I I my my number one joy across my life has just been thinking. And I think there's something that's uh, really helpful and uh, also very problematic and and not practical. And it's caused me no end of problems. And yet it's been my greatest joy. Persistence. I am dogged like a pit bull chasing a car on A small town summer street. I will never give up. And I've never given up on marriages and relationships. And I always get hit over the head. And people go, Well, why don't you just give up? Well, because I'm a pit bull chasing a car. You know? It just it's just not in my DNA to do that. Competitive, I am. I always have been. Proud of it. A cycle of depression and exuberance. I don't accept the manic f- framework. I, I I just, it doesn't quite sit with me. Um, it's close, mm. but I think that more, I just get enormously involved and excited and believing and just jumping up on the desk. And I just simply don't have the energy to sustain that all the time. I really believe it's more physical energy. And it's, of course, become more, a little bit more acute as I've gotten older. But I just don't think anyone has the energy to be me at my fullest form, in say, in a classroom sense. I mean, try to do that all the time. I mean, it's like, you know, I understand why, you know, people in rock and roll have had some drug problems. You know, I I really get it. Uh resentment. Uh I think that is a special form of anger. I do have some resentments. I do. And I'm not proud of them at all. Um I, I'm very concerned about them. I, I wish I could just be angry, you know, in my stepbrother's sense. My stepbrother was a real, you know, he was a street fighter. And he always was very calm, but he wasn't fighting. And I, I really wish I had that level. Of, of control and that ties into strange conflict. I feel like I have a deep conflict between cowardice and courage, sometimes just so fucking full on. And sometimes I just, you know, I, I'm not my stepbrother. He was my model of masculine. He was always perfect in that moment, knowing when to summon the violence, the calm, you know i i just i'm not i don't have that control of the dial self reflection i'm always too little or too much stingy versus generous this really hits me i want to be i want to be generous all the time i i i'm not inherent nostalgia i was born with that i i remember that from my very first Early memories. I I I didn't like the new supermarkets. I liked the weird old creepy mom and pop shops with some of the acoustic tiles falling down and strange shit happening. And finally, in my my inventory of myself, I think deception. I, I I'm always concerned that I'm never quite true to myself even if I'm really, really trying. So I hope that suggests something of the inventory that I've started with. This isn't going to be my finished point. But we've got to be honest with ourselves. We've got to be naked and vulnerable to ourselves in the mirror. We've got to find a way to do that to find any way forward with sanity. It's very painful. And I suggest if it's not painful, you're not doing it fully. But if you can actually bear up to that, and I've got a long way to go, but I think you can see I've made a start. I've addressed some really positive things about myself. I'm very proud of my curiosity. I can't help it. I'm proud of some of these things. I'm not proud of some of the other things. Uh, But if you can get to that point of of naked vulnerability with yourself, then there's nothing that transcends that teaching. You are the teacher. You, You are the book. You are the text. You are the tradition, the cultural tradition. You're not just a text. You are, in fact, a cultural tradition. You're a sigil, an emblem. You just have to have the, you know, the courage to explore it. And and I, there are some things here that really disturb me about myself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are some things that I recognize as, look, hey, it's not, I don't have to apologize. It's just who I am, you know. Uh, I, I just have to accept it. It's okay, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I'm a good teacher. I'm a good person. I'm a good, you know, who wouldn't say I'm a good neighbor, you know? Find me one person. I, I think you can find two two women at least to go. Well, I'm not a good husband. I, I grant you that. I'm not sure they'd actually say that now, but I think you'd never. I think you'd look long and hard to find someone who would ever say, "I'm not a good neighbor," or "I'm not a good teacher." You know, and I think that many of us have had some romantic, erotic issues with people. And then I'm not even so sure that those exes wouldn't say something kind about me. So mm-hmm. my my point is to try to map yourself in a forensic way with some real you know, roll up those fucking sleeves because they're your sleeves. You know, and I think that that effort is worth something very significant. And so my tip, however, is beautifully practical and back to kitchen level because that was. By the way,
1: I'm going to I found that very powerful and I'm going to do one of my own for next week. I'll bring you mine next week.
0: Well, I thank you. I know I. I mean, I think it would be very meaningful to hear yours, particularly at this stage in life. You, you've you got so much going on that, I mean, I really, I resonate so much with your time in life and, and the challenges that you're facing. And you're open to so many, you know, to be open is something that is really lost on so many people. You know, I mean, that—that that is the moment there, right there. Are people open to change? And you're the age where the doors start closing. If they haven't closed, you know, at 18 or 21, they close at your age forever. And if you stay open, then we all have faith and hope. And, you know, maybe something good will come. But here's a fun tip that... All families can do, because this gets back to our idea of crystal radio, home science. Don't follow the science always. Try to, like, emulate the science. Try to think about what, what would a scientist do? Some spilled bean and bacon soup. Don't get distracted by the bean and bacon just think of the spilled soup. Burns on a stove. How long does it take for the smell to reach the laundry room? Well, okay. Of course, a key factor is how far the laundry is from the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Or even if you have... A laundry area some people don't some of our listeners may be doing laundry in a more public sort of space nevertheless this is a very practical example of crystal radio home science what are the sciences involved i mean i can tell you how far it is from my laundry room to my kitchen It makes me think, though, about the number of sciences as in academic disciplines that might influence my thinking about how long it takes the smell of a burnt issue on my stove to reach the laundry room. It could be a very important practical consideration. It could be my house being on fire. If we allow ourselves to engage with science, at the levels that we're actually dealing with it, then we might feel some more confidence when some of our friends say, well, we're following the sciences. You know, we're wearing three masks, you know? Uh, maybe take off the masks and think a little bit more about actual science, not following some priest cast. Or CNN expert, just a thought.
1: I like that. So, been having fever dreams lately. Um, they've been pretty intense. One of them that I liked in particular. Where did it go? Oh, see, I got this new phone. I used to put everything in the notes app, and now there is a. Journal app.
0: Yeah. I put everything in now. Get the app. Get you the know. app.
1: Where the hell is the damn journal app? There it we is. We
0: gotta be an app. Lost Explorers has gotta be an app, man. The app.
1: Um I was driving around a rainy town on the eastern seaboard. I was looking for a specific type of traffic light. Suspended. From the cross section of two thick wires, a big bulky stoplight with all four. I
0: feel it. I stop feel it. signs
1: on that. I was you looking put- for their batteries, so I was taking a big ladder and I was opening them up, and the batteries looked a lot like cell phones. Pushing through a tunnel, I'm pushing through through students then, through a tunnel to bring a wrapped up. Picture of an angel to a snowy brutalist city at the bottom of a steep valley. So I come out of this tunnel, and there is a strip of land, then a deep valley, and in that valley you can see the tops of these brutalist structures that are covered in snow. And in one of those buildings uh, is my stepmother, to whom I'm delivering this bubble wrapped angel picture thought there were some cool images there
0: that was just a beautiful poem you know this is again something i'm I, i'm working through with my students that language is a performance unto itself it is not about describing or in any way telling us about something it is a, a direct performance expression of life. And if you bring people back to that directly, oh, then there's nothing that, that, you know, language isn't like a clue. There's no prepositional distance. What you just said was something unto itself that I experience now because I'm really training myself into this. There is no distance. It's hallucinogenically immediate. There, it's physically real. It's as real as you are. Your image is on on zoom right now, and that's really important. And uh, I, I really, I think that one of the things that Dave and I always want to put forward, and I, I just see this so vigorously, continuously in my classrooms is that if we share some of our intimate psychic experience with others, we don't have to do it in a ritual, you know, habitual sense of every day, you know, you're gonna share your dream with your wife or whatever. No, but just be open to doing that from time to time when the mood sits. You open up channels of new communication and this is what, to go back to a major theme that we started with, what we have to learn from indigenous remote populations around the world is they do share their dreams. They share their storytelling in a very immediate sort of level. And I, I've had a very strange sort of dreaming rant where I feel like I got lost in huge narrative structures of flow. And only certain key moments emerge out. For one, a young Mexican, not an American Mexican, but more a Mayan caste, like Mexican-Mexican kid, young kid, not my age group of teaching, videoing me while I teach. And I was uncertain about that. Secondly, align and always, 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 always pay close attention to when language of dreaming survives into the waking state. This is my line. I'm saying this. There's a big difference between accepting a bribe for $100,000 and two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and then there's just this magic visual image of a really hot but not my taste i like i I really do I, i i'm attracted to black women i always have been but i didn't like this woman's hairstyle i didn't like her attitude nevertheless in a restaurant She's eating a cracked, deep, deep red lobster, like really serious, like scarlet red-shelled lobster in butter. And it's the butter smell is a little too strong. And the creature morphs alive into this thing with black pulsing bladders, like large living grapes and then they take further shape and definition becoming heads Mm. somewhere between reptile and dog and then the whole thing flips over and my concerns about not being quite attracted enough to this beautiful black woman, become rather superseded by a hydra creature in front of me. Yeah, that crab is not on her plate anymore. And I'm not even sure where she is because I'm dealing with these heads. And I think this is, is testimony to my idea that imagery transcends narrative. And that we get overwhelmed by the really rich narrative of dreams. I think some amazing things have been happening in my dream life of late. And Mm. I'm just not able to process them as narrative because there is so much narrative in our waking life. That's amazing.
1: That's really good. Also, that reminds me a lot of, the birthing scene in gremlins to the new batch when the gremlins get covered in water and the pustules form on them. I and the, the gremlin heads start to form in the pustules, which are sort of lizard and dog. Like you could see that, uh, but that's great. That's awesome. I am. Um, I really enjoyed this episode and I'm we now going to do
0: David I hope you feel better. I'm
1: going to go yeah. make some tea and go to bed.
0: Yeah, and thanks everyone for listening, and thank you for the the great compliments coming through on uh, the last episode and lava lamp creativity. David put out some really important ideas. You know, we're both teaching at different levels. I th- I think that the notion that we're you know we're trying to not educate anyone, mm-hmm. other than ourselves. But we are trying to reach out and to be stewards. You know, stewardship is something that, that is a term that Dave and I both use. And, and we encourage that and we want to stand up to that. You know, we're, we're stand up stewards, if nothing else.